Hey, Cole, are you ready to be terrified yet again? Always. Good, because this week I've got a story about an old man's silver balls that's going to make you scream. Oh, boy. Welcome to Second to Die, a horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. And sometimes horror. I'm Max. And I'm Cole. And apparently you are telling me about silver balls today. I am going to tell you not just about any silver balls, but about an old creepy man's silver balls. All right. <laughs> In Sounds like my early teens. What? Yeah. So, well, people may have Oh, God. I, I meant to I say just... late teens. Oh, no, that was a Freudian slip there. Anyway, that's a whole different episode. So, people may have guessed by that. Actually, people may not. That this week, I'm going to be talking about a 1979 film called Phantasm. It is a pretty classic film, to be honest. I've literally never even heard of it. That doesn't shock me. Because you haven't ever heard of anything. But it is pretty well known. It's... I think part of the problem is that it came out a year after Halloween. And the vibe is kind of similar. Not the... It's not a slasher flick. But the vibe of the movie is sort of similar. And I think Halloween overshadowed it a little bit. But it was very successful. And it has actually spawned um, four sequels. So five total, including the original. Jeez. Yeah. I just remember passing your computer a couple of times while you were watching it and seeing a lot of mushroom hair. (laughs) Well, right, because it's 1979. And that's kind of the style. Honestly, I love that style. I'm really big into like late 70s stuff. I like the music. I like the style. It's pretty cool. You know, like high-waisted bell-bottom jeans. The mushroom hair. Well, obviously, I would never have that. But from... For back then, it worked out okay for them. I mean, there was a point when I really thought it looked stupid, but now I kind of dig it because it's sort of retro looking. That's exactly what I strive for. Something working out just okay. Yeah. Well, and I think the the mushroom hair in this, I'm trying to think of who has it. I mean, the old man has it, and then I, the young kid kind of does, but the main, like, hunky dreamboat character he doesn't have mushroom hair he just kind of has like shaggy 70s hair yeah anyway i digress (laughs) anyway so we started talking about silver balls and ended up talking about mushroom heads let's go yeah so just briefly kind of explain obviously i'll get to them in a bit but the whole point of silver balls and the reason that most people might have guessed that this is phantasm is because in phantasm the guy There's the main villain type guy who they just call the tall man is this like old guy who owns like a funeral parlor mausoleum and he uses these silver balls to kill people in the movie. In the first one, actually, it doesn't really explain what they do. They kind of fly through the air and hit you in the face. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) As balls tend to do. I was going to say that was a little too much of low-hanging fruit, but then that was a joke in and of itself. It's a little on the nose for you. Or on the chin. Thanks, folks. We'll be here all week. <laughs> but so anyway, so these ball, what they actually do, to be honest, is like they have these these um sort of like knifey things come out the sides. They latch onto your forehead and then they drill into your forehead and like like drill your brains out and then the back of them open and then like all of your like brain blood goo like... Starts, like, spewing out of the back of the ball. That's so cool. It only happens once in this movie, but it is, like, such an intense scene. It's pretty great. That sounds like a lot of fun. So, I figured you had never heard of this movie because it is well-known. It's become a very big cult classic, and it is quite well done, to be honest. It's so similar. In vi- I'm going to keep saying that the vibe is so much like Halloween, and I think that's probably for a few reasons. Um one, they were made around the same time period. Two, it's kind of the style of this late 70s stuff. But I think that you may enjoy it because I know when we watched Halloween together, you enjoyed that. I did. I, I enjoyed the quiet menace of Halloween. 
Yes, it's so much of it is very similar. Also, they do the thing where they play the theme music while kind of regular normal stuff is happening. Ooh, I love that. Yeah, and Halloween is the first movie that I remember that really was effective in doing that. And this movie, when you watch it, is like the same thing. I'm going to actually play for you the theme music. And I guess I'll just do it right now and then we can just jump, jump forward just so you know what we're dealing with. Song time. So that's it. It is very, I don't know if you remember the Halloween theme that much. Yes, it's very similar. It's also kind of similar to our theme music, IJS. <laughs> I'm just saying. It, it. I mean, it has a similar vibe. It has that kind of old school retro horror that, not to be honest, now I think people spend a lot of money trying to recapture. Like Stranger Things kind of has it. Stranger Things was going for more 80 when it was like super synth wavy. But this is, you know, 79. So this is almost there. And it's kind of the yeah. early versions of that yeah and so like i said like that kind of plays just as like regular stuff is happening like as the kid is like walking on the street and stuff like that and halloween did that as well and it creates like an atmosphere and it is spooky like the bells i think bells can be spooky i don't know anyways so a little bit more about this movie and i'll probably talk a little bit more about just sort of facts around this movie because the plot is pretty simple and i've already mentioned like one of the big scenes i was going to talk about which was the silver balls death scene But it was directed, written, photographed, and edited by Don Coscarelli. And interesting, I thought interesting, he was born in, well, so first of all, he was born in Libya, but he was, he moved to California when he was very, very young. He was born in 54, and this movie came out in 79, so he was like in his 20s when he did all this. Nice. Good for him. Yeah. His budget was $300,000. It was not studio-backed. It was largely funded by his father, as well as well as some like local doctors and lawyers. So it was kind of this thing where I think he I have a feeling that his family had some money and moved from Libya and his dad backed some of it and then probably asked some of his friends to help fund it. Three hundred thousand yeah. dollars even in the seventies is not like a ton of money or anything yeah. like that. And because so it came out a year after Halloween, because of Halloween success, and my guess is how kind of similar an atmosphere this is. A distribution studio purchased it and then distributed it, and it grossed nearly $12 million. Wow. So for a movie that was made for $300,000, that's a pretty good turnover. Yeah. Takes money to make money. Anyways, also super adorable. His mother designed some of the special effects, costumes, and makeup. Aw. I know. So supportive. It's like, I just picture this like 20 something year old director being like, mom, can you make the costumes for my horror movie? I don't know. I mean, in costumes, it's not like this is like set in a different time period or anything, but yeah, you know, high waisted bell bottom jeans. That's, there's a lot of those. So, and then the cast and crew were mainly friends of his and aspiring professionals. He also could not afford an editor or a cameraman. So he did both of those tasks himself this is really awesome not gonna lie it's cool it's cool because it's like it was a personal project and like this kind of a thing would just never happen these days yeah no like you do have b films that i feel like are people's projects that they make with their friends but i feel like people's expectations for production value nowadays is so high that things like that don't get off the ground very well yeah i agree so like i said they it spawned four sequels Five movies in total, the last of which was actually released in 2016. So they came out, just to give you an idea, so the original was 79, the sequels were 88, 94, 99, and 16. So some of them had some pretty big gaps. Yeah. Cascarelli wrote and directed all of them except for the fifth one, which was directed by David Hartman, but he still wrote the fifth movie and was involved in it. He just didn't direct it personally. Okay. Also, very cool, I thought. He kept basically all of the same main cast members throughout the film. The films, obviously, they're going to have different supporting casts and some new characters. But the like three or four main characters are all the exact same actors. With the one exception, the character who plays the, the young brother in this movie, his the character's name is Mike Pearson. He's played by A. Michael Baldwin. 
for some reason it changed actors for Phantasm 2, but then the original actor came back with 3, 4, and 5. Why that happened, who knows, but probably the internet, but I didn't bother to look it up. (laughs) And then, obviously, it's got a cult classic following situation. So, uh, Coscarelli gets asked all the time if there's going to be a Phantasm 6, but the actor who plays the main villain, who they just refer to as the tall man in in um, the movie, his name is Angus Scrim, and he actually passed away in 2016, right after post-production of the last one. He was oh. 89 years old. Oh, boy. And Coscarelli basically said that there's no current plans, that it would be basically very difficult to do without Angus. Which is kind of cool because, I mean, he could easily recast that character. But I think in his head, this is a very important project. He, you know, these people, this is like not based off of anything other than my personal feelings towards this. My guess is, you know, this was his first thing. So he was just starting out. It was a very like personal project. He got all these people that probably did this for very little to no money and carried them with him through the success of the franchise and my guess is it would just feel very different to try to do it without them yeah i imagine after a certain point it just starts to feel a little bit like a family yeah even with the movies being so far apart like i'm certain they kept in touch the whole time like yeah especially with a cast like that that's um or especially with a franchise that becomes this cult thing you know they do like screenings and stuff like that screenings cons yeah all kinds of stuff so it's it's pretty cool. This is classified more as sci-fi horror. Just kind of jumping along to, to new facts. This is more of a sci-fi horror theme. If I were to sum up the plot in like a very succinct way, it would sound batshit crazy. And it is. I'm so excited. It's like, I don't, yeah, I guess I'll just tell you that the main, I'll tell you the main plot and then kind of go through what happens. But essentially the main plot is that there is this funeral director guy who is capturing and killing people to turn them into dwarf robot slaves to send back to his home planet. What? Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm flabbergasted. I. Yeah. And in, in some of the synopses of this, it says that he's sending them back to his home planet of Mars. And um, I'll come clean right now and tell you, I have actually not watched any of the Phantasm sequels. But the planet in the original one is never referred to as Mars. It is a completely red-skied planet, but they don't call it Mars. So I don't know if that... I don't know where they got that. Maybe from one of the, one of the future ones. Who knows? That's so much. It's like... So this movie... One of the weird things is this movie is super out there and also somewhat doesn't make sense. And I'll tell you kind of why. So because this was kind of a pet project-y situation, it was filmed only on weekends and over the course of more than a year, because I'm assuming all these people had regular jobs. So it was filmed only on weekends. The script was ever-changing. Like, they would film stuff, and then during the week, Coscarelli would be like, oh, I'm going to add this. None of the actors ever got a completed version of the script, and all the time were basically just given new scenes that they didn't know were even happening. So... During the shooting, they had no clear idea of the ending and, in fact, shot several endings, and Coscarelli just chose one of them. And, fun fact, apparently one of the endings that they had originally came up with, they later used in Phantasm Four in 98. So it was just, like, this craziness. I mean, if you had a pet project, if you think about it, and you're giving yourself, like, weeks in between shooting, I bet you that you probably would just obsess about it and think about different ways to do things over the course of a year. So like, but the actors would probably, that had to have been frustrating showing up on set and being like, what scene is this? Oh, it's the new scene in the script. Oh, another one. Great. Yeah. No, mm -mm. you know how well I handle change. Yeah. So the whole movie, it is very well done, but there is a big part of the movie that kind of seems a little bit disjointed. There's, very large plot holes and very large why is this even in this movie moments, but it's sort of all forgiven a little bit because there's all these weird theories about this movie and why it is the way it is and what it's really supposed to be. And the biggest prevailing one that you are probably not going to like, to be honest with you, oh boy, is that the entire movie is a dream. <laughs> 
And I'll kind of, I'll explain why as I go through a little bit of the plot and tell you sort of things happen. But the movie is also supposed to be a metaphor for basically a teenager dealing with loss. Because in the movie, the the younger brother, the character of Mike, his parents had died two years prior in a car accident. Yikes. And his older brother may or may not be dead. This is... I'll, I'll just kind of talk about it a little bit as we're going through it. Um, another, just a couple more fun facts for anybody who really cares about Phantasm and, and wants to know a little bit more, but doesn't want to look things up. It was uh, originally inspired by the novel Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. Oh my gosh, that's literally on the bookshelf behind you. Oh. So, and so fun, super fun fact, Coscarelli, when he was actually going to do this project, he wanted to get the rights to Something Wicked This Way Comes and just do a movie version of that. Ooh. But somebody had already bought those rights, so he couldn't get them. Yeah. He also drew inspiration from 1953's Invaders from Mars, which may be why people are kind of speculating that the planet was Mars. Again, it may actually say Mars in some of the sequels, but in the first one, it does not. And um, Dario Argento's classic Suspiria, which, to be honest, I have actually not seen. I know you haven't seen it, but we've... We know of it, and we talk about watching that and the remake. So. Yeah, we've talked about it. It is a classic. I know I'm a terrible horror fan for not having seen it, but I believe it's, like, super psychological. And when that movie came, like, when I was sort of coming into my horrorness, psychological horror was not what I was going for. I can tell you that. Anyway, last one, random fact. In the movie Star Wars The Force Awakens, the... Character of Captain Phasma, the name was chosen in reference to this movie, Phantasm. Abrams had, the director of Star Wars, had said that uh, Phasma's name he chose because of the amazing chrome design that came from the wardrobe team. It reminded him of the silver balls in Phantasm. So he thought, yeah, sure, Phasma sounds cool. Okay, I'll buy it. Okay, so a little bit more about like what actually happens in this movie. Not too, too much, but you kind of know the general plot because I've told you it. But the other important characters, obviously, I mentioned the character of Mike, played by A. Michael Baldwin. His older brother is named Jody. He's played by Bill Thornberry. Their friend is named Reggie. He's played by Reggie Bannister. That character and actor is a friend of Coscarelli's. There is the tall man, played by Angus Grimm, that we mentioned passed away, unfortunately, in 2016. Rest in peace. There's a few other people, but then also there's this character of the Lady in Lavender. The Lady in Lavender, she's portrayed by Kathy Lester, so I'll just say that she is how do i put this so the tall man this like old creepy funeral guy in order to get people to kill for some reason morphs into this beautiful woman in a lavender dress and then has sex with these men and then kills them and that's the opening scene is you see the lady in lavender wearing these like super badass shoes in the graveyard having sex with this guy Tommy and they basically like finish and she takes out a dagger and stabs him and then her face flashes to be the tall man's face hey did you think gay yes well I mean she's a woman I don't really know to be honest it's one of the few things few things it's one of the many things in this movie that doesn't 100% make sense because he needs to kill these people to make these dwarf slaves. But that's what they're called in the movie. I don't know what you want me to say. I, no, be, I wasn't. I just, it's, it's just a lot. Truthfully, they remind me a lot of Jawas because when you see oh, them in the movie. God, I was obsessed with Jawas when I was a kid. Yeah. Ooh, diggity. They, well, so Ooh, they wear, <laughs> they wear um these like hooded robes. So they really do look like Jawas. It's weird. But so there, what I'm kind of getting at is there's no reason for him to have sex with them before killing them. Like it doesn't need to, it's not ever explained as to why that happens other than he can lure them away more easily, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, so he kills this character, Tommy, and then Tommy's basically Jody's friend. So they have the funeral and for some reason, Mike's not allowed to go to the funeral, I guess, because he, I don't know, they... It's something about, like, his parents had died two years prior and they don't want him to experience more loss of this other person. But Mike goes and, like, watches from afar. It doesn't make a lot of sense. That, that's going to happen a lot here. Awesome. 
But so Jody's walking around and the funeral home, the parlor is like a normal sort of like chapel looking parlor, but the mausoleum part is all very stark white and grayed marble and everything is marbled. So it's like really like crazy and weird looking. And he keeps hearing these like grumbling noises. Oh, because the dwarf Jawa slaves make like little grumble grumbles. And it kind of sounds like electronic growling. That's adorable though. Yeah, it's something. So anyway, the only point of that scene is that Mike sees the tall man outside of the funeral home. He's like hiding. Mike is hiding in the bushes and the tall man lifts the entire coffin up by himself and puts it into the hearse. So Mike's like, something's happening. (laughs) Something ain't right. Anyway, so Mike basically is like pretty convinced that something's wrong. What he ends up doing is. And I'm I'm gonna skip around a little bit here, but what he ends up doing is going to the funeral parlor at night for some reason to try to investigate things. The tall man like chases him. He ends up like running into a room and slamming the door, and the tall man's fingers are in the door, and Mike has a knife, so he cuts the tall man's fingers off, and his blood is like all yellow goop and not real blood, and the fingers keep moving. So oh. Mike Mike grabs one, puts it into a box, and takes it home. He eventually, sh- well, because he has to, like you do, yeah. What? Sometimes you just have to finger a box. I don't know what else to say about that. Lord, we can't have all of these dirty jokes. Some people put fingers in boxes. It happens. Okay. So he has to show the finger to his older brother to convince him. It's actually like, it's kind of funny because sometimes, you know, in movies, people like never believe anybody, of course. They're like, this guy's a monster. And they're like, no, he's not. <laughs> Well, this movie is like, we're not dealing with any of that bullshit because I'm going to be like, this guy's a monster. Look at this finger in this box that's like got yellow blood and it's like still moving. And he does. And so Jody is like, okay, yeah, he's a monster. (laughs) Sounds about right. Yeah. It just like moves the plot right along. So Jody's like, okay, we have to do something about this. And then at one point they're going to actually like go to the police, but they open the finger box up. And the finger has transformed into this giant, weird-looking fly. And it, like, flies around into Mike's hair. And then they end up taking it and, like, putting it down the garbage disposal to kill it. People have speculated that this scene supports the dream theory because weird, random stuff happens in dreams when you try to make logical steps. I don't know. I think that they were just trying to be weird. It makes no sense. They explain it not at all in the movie. All right. It's also kind of a dumb scene. But this movie sounds fucking weird. It's so weird. It's weird, but it's so fascinating because the atmosphere is so nice and so interesting and spooky-ish that like you don't notice that this movie makes no sense. You're just kind of like entertained. I mean, you know me, and I've talked about this many times in the podcast where a lot of times during movies I'm just like, God, how much longer does this thing have? That didn't happen to me during this movie. I the whole time I'm just like, this is really fucking weird. There's so there's also this character of grandmother, which is like this like psychic in the town, and it's this old lady who wears this like black lace stuff, and she only talks psychically through her granddaughter, and like it's weird because Mike, I'm only mentioning it. Mike goes to visit her, and she gives him some cryptic stuff about like loss and acceptance and moving on and stuff like that. She is never mentioned or seen from in, again in the movie, and I can only imagine that like she had to have just been like added on a whim or something. She's not integral to the plot at all. That whole character should have been cut. I'm not. She's someone's aunt. Yeah, and then he, she makes him stick his hand in a box, and it like starts hurting him. And she's like, "You have to calm down." Well, she's talking through her granddaughter. She's like, "You have to calm down. You have to calm down." And I think it's like a controlling your emotion situation and like not panicking. It really, to me, I was thinking this whole thing just ripped off Dune because this is literally like the Gamjabar test, which I don't think you've seen or read Dune, but. I have not, but we watched the trailer of the new one, and it has that scene in it, and you told me about it. Yeah, it is literally just like the Gamjabar test, and I was like, this seems... I don't know why this is in this right now, but okay. Anyways, later on, somebody gets killed by a silver ball, blah, blah, blah. I'll just mention a couple things. So at one point, they kind of go to the funeral parlor, and they are... They end up being... Like, Jody goes to check it out and locks Mike in his room, Only mention this because Mike has a book on his desk and I like little Easter eggs. The book is uh, My Name is Legion by Roger Zelazny. It was a sci-fi anthology published in 76. It sounds kind of interesting, so I'm just going to tell you real quick because I looked up what the book was about. 
It is three interwoven stories that all have the same hero, from my understanding, that involves a global computer network designed to give the ultimate economic control by keeping track of human activity. The hero realizes that the power could be abused, so he destroys all of his personal data and becomes a non-existent person. He then uses backdoors that he knows in the system to create identities as needed for himself to accomplish his various goals. Kind of sounds interesting. Kind of sounds like modern times. Oh, yeah. We're making our way there. Yeah. So back to Jody ends up scoping out the funeral parlor. They end up getting Mike goes there. I'm going to skip a lot of this. They end up running away and they get chased in a car by one of the Jawa dwarfs and the car crashes and they go to scope it out. And the Jawa dwarf not only has yellow blood, but has the head of Tommy, their friend who was killed in the beginning. Oh, boy. So that's when they start putting it together that he's turning these dead humans into Jawa dwarves. And actually at one point, um, the tall man morphs into the lady in lavender and goes to one of the local bars and um, Jody picks her up and they go back to the cemetery and they almost are like getting it on. Like she takes off her top and you get a little bit of Jody's side, butt, and Mike is like watching them because Mike always follows Jody around. That's another reason that people think this is like a dream theory because Mike follows Jody around constantly because he has a fear of abandonment from his older brother because his parents died two years ago. Yeah, that makes sense psychologically. Mm. But people are basically like, there are just no scenes without Mike in them. So this must be like Mike's dream. Yeah. You know, it makes sense. Whatever. So anyways, before the lady in Lavender can kill Jody, they don't actually end up having sex because Mike ends up screaming because a Jawa comes up to him and, and whatever. I just thought I would I would point that out. Long story short, they hatch a plan to kill the tall man. They are going to apparently lure him to this like little place that has a an old mine shaft and make him fall down it and then throw rocks down the mine shaft. Why they have to do this as opposed to just like shooting him or something, I don't know. They decide that the the only way to stop him is to create this giant elaborate plan that could easily go wrong. Oh boy. But it does succeed basically. <laughs> Mike gets the tall man to chase him. The tall man falls down the mine shaft, rocks fall down. Done. Okay. So then after that happens, Mike is like dreaming. Then like next thing you know, oh, <laughs> while that all is ha- right before that happened, Reggie, their other friend, was killed by the tall man before they ran away from the funeral home. So Reggie was dead. But then in the end scene of the movie, Reggie is alive, talking to Mike by a fire. Reggie tells Mike that Jody has been dead this whole time in a car crash and that Reggie is now going to take care of Mike just like Jody did. And they're kind of like the new family. And then it's like, okay. And there's nothing else really on that. And then Mike goes upstairs, closes his closet door and sees behind him the tall man in the mirror. And then hands crash through the mirror grab mike and pull him through the mirror and that's how the movie ends <laughs> the last scene makes actual zero sense what the f- oh boy i mean it makes literal no sense that's why <laughs> to be honest the only reason i know about this whole dream theory thing is because i watched this movie and i finished it and literally as soon as the credits ran i hit pause i clicked open new tab because i stream my movies obviously like any modern person and I googled ending of phantasm <laughs> because I'm like, what the fuck is this? And so I know that there's this theory that it's all a dream and that this is like him trying to cope because they were basically saying like his parents died and then his brother died too. But I know his brother's in the other films, so I don't know if that's necessarily true. I don't know. It didn't make a lot of sense. But at the same point, I don't know if I cared. It was still good. I didn't like the last part. I'll say that. I didn't like the last scene. But aside from that, it was still pretty good. I mean, it was well done. It was super fucking weird. Yeah, that sounds insane. Oh, yeah, I totally forgot. Oh, boy. <laughs> this is what happens when I, when I like, sh- like, shirk off my notes. Okay. So, there is also a part when they're in the funeral home, but right before Reggie dies, actually, and they find this room with these barrels, and the barrels have, essentially, like, the dwarf Jawas, like, incubating from people, and then there are these two metal poles, and when Mike sticks his hand between them, his hand disappears. And then Mike falls between them, and that's when he's on this other planet. And he basically is, like, 
seeing all this like red sky and like a line of Jawas, like Jawa slaves and stuff like that. And Jody had reached in and grabbed him and pulls him back. And then Mike is using super deduction powers and is like, he's making slaves to bring back to his home planet. That's what, that's the whole point, which is a leap, but I guess it's, it makes sense. Accurate, technically. Yeah. So I just thought I should bring that up because that I had not mentioned about like them going to another planet, but that's how they figured out that he's making these people and transporting them. So. Anyways, that's it. Final thoughts. I've already said most of it, but I really did enjoy it because of the music, because of the whole 70s vibe. I really like that. The I can kind of get the whole psychological aspect of it. It made it kind of interesting. I don't know. I like this movie. I think if you haven't seen this movie, I think, well, one, if you like the atmosphere of 70s horror movies and stuff, you should definitely see it. It is a sci-fi horror, but it's not like over-the-top sci-fi for people who don't like sci-fi yeah there's not a lot of deaths in it but the that silver ball death scene alone is worth watching i mean it's it's out there the blood is just spewing everywhere (laughs) so anyways that's phantasm great movie from 79 if you haven't seen it you should check it out people anybody who like me was a kid wandering the aisles of blockbuster back in the day and loved to hang out in the horror section would recognize this movie so that's that now tell me what you're going to talk about All right. So I have another book today that had a lot of buzz. So it's another like modern release. I am doing Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno Garcia. Uh, It was published earlier this year. And I'm pretty sure that the next person on the hold list at the library is going to be very happy when I finally return it. (laughs) Because it was due a while ago. Anyway. Uh, let's just dive right in. The cover was done by Tim Green at Face Out Studios. It is a book set in the 50s, so the cover is pretty spot on. You've got a woman with an off-the-shoulder pink number in front of a green botanical damask wallpaper. It's very 50s, yet very gothic at the same time. I love it. Do you think it's... Do you think that green wallpaper, which... I actually love that wallpaper. One, I like damask. Two, my favorite color is green. Do you think that that's like... This is probably such a stretch. But you know like the poisonous green wallpaper? Sort of. Sort of you know it or sort of you understand what I'm talking about? Oh, I love arsenic green. Okay, yeah, I was wondering... I could do an entire podcast episode just babbling about arsenic green. The fact that Victorians were willing to die for aesthetics, I love it. (laughs) Yeah. But that's kind of like what I wonder as I'm like, oh, it kind of reminds me of that of that arsenic green wallpaper. It's not the same color, but like that's just kind of like where my mind went to. And I just wonder if that was on purpose or they just liked that green, which I wouldn't fault them for because I also like that green. Yes, it's a very nice shade of green. There's like a, a brief reference to arsenic green in the book. And then they also mention at one point that mercury used to be used in paint to prevent mold. Oh. And, and that that could make people sick too. So it might have been intentional. I mean, if they mention it even once in the book, then maybe the cover is like a slight nod or something. It's more the botanical aspect. We'll get there. In my head, it's killer wallpaper. What? Okay. What is she holding? Is that flowers? Yes. That's okay. a bundle of flowers. Okay. I do like that dress. It's a great dress. And it's actually described in the book. Unlike most like, Books that just have, like, a woman in a dress or a girl in a dress on the cover, and then the dress never, like, shows up. Like, she wears that dress several times Hmm. throughout the course of the book. It's great. I would, too, if I had that body. Body, yaddy, yaddy. Yeah, I'm way too shouldery for a dress like that. Yeah, she's got those, like, oh, so delicate Mm, shoulders. Yeah. Anyway, I'm skipping a little bit from the middle of the blurb because it's kind of long, but I will read you my abridged version. After receiving a frantic letter from her newlywed cousin, Nomi Taboada heads to High Place, a distant house in the Mexican countryside, unsure of what she will find. Nomi's only ally in this inhospitable place is the family's youngest son, but he too may be hiding something dark. For there are many dark secrets behind the walls of High Place, as Nomi discovers when she begins to unearth stories of violence and madness. Mesmerized by this terrifying yet seductive world, Nomi may soon find it impossible to save her cousin, 
or even escape this enigmatic house. And this takes place in Mexico? In Mexico, which is why it's called Mexican Gothic, in the 1950s. Cool. Does it say, or do you remember what city it is? Uh, It's like a tiny town. Oh, okay. It opens in Mexico City because that's where Nomi lives, but she goes to this like teeny tiny mining town in some mountains. Okay. I've been to a couple. Is it known for silver mining? Yes. (laughs) Well, I asked that because when I was, you know, I studied in Mexico City. So when I was there, we went to um, Tosco. Yes. That's where it's from? Let me double check my notes. No, never mind. It's not Tosco. It's El Triunfo. Oh, okay. It may not even be a real town. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it was a town known for mining silver, so. Okay, yeah. I mean, I went to Tosco, so that just, it made sense to me because I know that there are towns, there are silver mining towns. Yeah. So, and- that That's how, like, the family who owns the house made their money. Okay, that makes sense, yeah. The family that Nomi's cousin married into. Okay. All right, so the premise is pretty clear just from the blurb, so I'm just going to get straight into some of the weird shit that happens in the house. Uh, Spoilers are ahead, folks. I know this is a really popular book right now, especially because we're just coming out of spooky season, so it's probably been all over Instagram. Actually, this will be posted after October, but it's the beginning of October as we're recording this. So I'm predicting (laughs) that it will be mentioned a lot in like bookish Instagram and whatnot. Uh, But it was posted everywhere, like over the summer and stuff when it was coming out. Mm -hmm. But that being said, if you're wanting to read this, I'm mainly going to be focusing on the twist of the story because it's where it gets a little bit batshit. So you might want to stop and go read it. I will still be here when you get back. The internet is, after all, eternal. It really is. So... Let me describe this house for you. It is a rambling manor house that has fallen into disrepair, as you would expect. The generator for electricity is bad, so they're restricted to mostly lamps and candles, because of course they are. And there's mold everywhere. Like everywhere. The books are moldy. The walls are moldy. The bathroom is moldy. Everything has mold. It just sounds like a health hazard. Mm. It sounds like post-hurricane, honestly. Also, it is a British family that lives there. They exploited a mining town. And they insist on keeping an English household, so no Spanish is allowed. Interesting. So here's where I have a small problem. Obviously, like, by no means do I have any authority whatsoever to tell a person of color that they have not written a story about another person of color with enough, I guess, content to it. But this book is heavily advertised as being this glamorous 1950s Mexico setting for a gothic novel. And then she basically ends up in a Victorian mansion. A Victorian mansion in Mexico, though? A Victorian mansion where the main character is the only Mexican person and everyone else is British. And they insist on keeping an English household, so they want it to feel as much like Britain as possible. Yeah, I mean, it's a story, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, so some backstory. There once was a woman in the family named Ruth. Uh, She is the sister of the man that Nomi's cousin married. Sorry, not is. Was. Or is she really dead? Who knows? She had a perfect life. She was spoiled. She was heavily favored. She was engaged to her cousin, so she was living the dream. Blessed and highly favored. Mm Mm-hmm. Blessed and highly favored. Then she went insane one night and shot a majority of the family before shooting herself. Ooh. Like a family annihilator. Pretty much. Um, So basically, Virgil, who is the man that Nomi's cousin married, and I I think... The aunt, whose name is Florence, I think she's an aunt. To be completely and totally honest with you, the family structure is very hard to follow. Regardless, Florence also survives. Florence proceeds to have Francis, who is the youngest son who is mentioned as the ally, uh, to Nomi. And then the other survivor is the patriarch of the family. His name is Howard. Um, He was shot, but he ended up living. Whereas, like, Virgil and Florence never got shot. 
Okay. It's very complicated. I'm not going to lie. I'm just kind of going with it right now. It is. It gets worse. Uh, So I say, is she really gone? Because her spirit seems to haunt the house. Nomi sees her in dreams. It's all very ooky spooky. But back to modern times. I'm going to talk very little about the little details of the plot, which means that I'm not going to talk much about Nomi's cousin, Catalina, or Francis's mother, Florence. Honestly, the person I'm going to talk most about is the patriarch, Howard. Strap in. Mm. First of all, he's super racist. Like, very, very racist. Okay. Like, upon first meeting Nomi, he basically is like, oh, hi, you're a lot darker than your cousin. (laughs) That really seems socially inappropriate. Yeah. um, And that's, like, somewhat a phrasing, but the phrase you're darker than your cousin is a quote from the book. So I'm not just like being flippant. I'm using it as a perfect example. Yeah. But honestly, I feel like people actually did say stuff like that back in the fifties. I mean, to be general, people said stuff like that way more recently in the fifties, but especially back in the fifties. Yeah. Well, plus Howard's super old and might be older than you think. Bum, bum, bum. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Um, and like, There's a point where Nomi goes to the house's library to look for something to read, and there's a fuck ton of books about eugenics. Oh. It's great. It's not great. I'm, like, grimacing and shaking my head, and then all of a sudden remembered that people listening can't see it right after. I was like, it's great! Like, no, it's not actually great. Yeah. It's kind of crazy, but it's pretty clear that he has a big influence on the whole keeping it English thing. Basically, think of him as the super racist grandfather that everyone is really uncomfortable around, but, like, he's the elder, so you just pretend it's not happening. I mean... Except you should totally call out your racist family members, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I call out people that say racist stuff pretty unapologetically. Usually on Facebook. It's fun to watch. (laughs) Well, I don't... Especially now, it's not like I'm socializing or interacting with people in person very much, so I have have to do it somehow yeah i am not the type of person that will just let something slide and then later be like this person said something super racist and i just didn't approve of it no i will say that to your face be like oh is that how you think okay well let me tell you why you're an idiot anyways well i swear this is all gonna come together we're almost there i'm laying the groundwork think of it as like a roller coaster and you're clicking to the top of the hill okay all right so last little side point Uh, Nomi also is having weird dreams the entire time she's there. There's like a woman in a lace dress with a shining light where her head should be. Uh, And there's a dream where she watches Ruth's killing spree. But instead of Howard, as we know him, he's just like a rotting man that Ruth shoots. Um, And then there's also like weird, steamy sex dreams about Virgil, who's totally her cousin's husband. Yeah, I mean, they're not related, though. Yeah, but that's rude to her cousin. I mean, yeah, it's definitely rude. But he's kind of gross anyway. Like, it's only steamy in the dreams. And then in, like, real life, he's, like, a super creeper towards her. Almost like he knows what's going on in the dreams. All right. So here comes the big spoiler. So if you haven't stopped now and you think you might want to stop, now is the time. Is the house haunted? Why is Nomi having nightmares and sleepwalking? Why is Catalina acting so strange? Well... It's because the mold in the house is a mind-controlling, partially sentient fungus that possesses psychic powers, allowing it to trap the spirits of the family members who have died in the house. I did not see that coming. Oh! Literally, I have commentary of, yep, let that sink in, wallow in it, and then, is it where you were expecting it to go? (laughs) Well, buckle up, Peaches, because it's about to get crazier. We have gone down the first hill in the roller coaster. We have gone up to the top, and we're about to go down another one. Not only is the mold sentient, but it has a special connection with the Doyle family, which I don't think I've like explicitly said. The Doyle family is the family that owns High Place. Okay. The British family. Sacrifices were involved. I'm not going to go into that backstory. But that's not the point. The mold drives most people crazy, but the Doyles are able to use it to have a certain level of control over anyone who has the spores in their bodies. It also makes them sort of immortal, which is why Howard likes to keep it in the family, because this roller coaster is not over yet. 
Oh. I mean, I just feel like this is going to go to like incest town. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. All right. So here we go. Howard is actually far older than he appears, and this is because when his body starts to die, he transfers his consciousness into the collective consciousness of the mold, which they call the gloom, and then he forces it into the younger body of one of his descendants. Then he uses the mind control power of the gloom to enforce incest with his children's sisters. And I'll just come here and say that I think I have everyone's relationships straight in this episode but as is very abundantly clear by what i just said if i have messed up please forgive me because their family tree is a trunk it doesn't really branch so it was hard to keep track of hmm but howard is like centuries old interesting and like fucks his daughters with his son's bodies to conceive his future daughter wife son bodies yeah yeah i'm following it I don't know what else to say about that. That mold is crazy. And the whole, like, I guess, driving point of this is that Nomi, and to a lesser and ultimately unsuccessful extent, her cousin, shows a strange affinity for the mold. So Howard is like, hmm, maybe she could be a part of the family without diluting the bloodline too much. So basically, he's trying to freshen up a couple of centuries of incest. Yeah, I mean... I feel like after a while, people just start to look really weird. Or act weird. There's actually a really wonderful scene where Francis is foraging for mushrooms in a misty cemetery. I mean, I don't know. That seems legit to me. It was great. It was I don't great. forage for mushrooms. It was lovely. Um, so I'm just going to skip a lot of the in-between stuff at this point. I'm closing in on the end of what I have to say. Uh, with the exception of mentioning that upon learning the family secret, Nomi refers to them as, quote, the Church of the Holy Incestuous Mushroom. <laughs> Nomi is sassy throughout the whole thing. Uh, I love her. That's pretty good. Yeah, I like that. Uh, the last little point that I want to mention is that when Nomi, Catalina, and Francis are escaping the house through a tunnel, because of course they're escaping through a tunnel, uh, they find the body of Agnes, who was... Howard in his current body's first wife and was shrouded in a whole lot of mystery throughout the whole story. Her corpse is possessed by the fungus and covered in mushrooms and whatnot to serve as kind of like the central brain of the fungus. Okay. I just wanted to mention that because it's, it's, it was a lovely image, just mushrooms everywhere. Aren't fungi like, I don't know. This could be totally wrong. Aren't they like somewhat intelligent? Like as far as like, a vegetable could be intelligent. There are fungi that possess um, dead ants and take them over. The zombie ant fungus. Yes, thing. the zombie ants. Which actually I think is mentioned in this book. Or maybe I just thought about it really hard while I was reading the book. It's kind of hard to separate the two sometimes. Yeah. I, I mean, to be honest, mind controlling spores is not like the most unique concept. But it hasn't been like overdone or anything like that. Well, also not the most unique concept. It ends by setting Agnes on fire and burning down the house. Oh. I mean, fire kills everything, I guess. Basically. Kill it with fire. I think, I mean, to be truthful, if you want to even go into a deeper thing, which I don't really want to, but, like, fire does kind of symbolically have this cleansing factor, I guess. Like, it, I don't think that I'm blowing anyone's mind by th- saying that. So I feel like that's pretty common for a lot of things. It's like, we just kill with fire. Because that's how it was with well, that's how it is with everything. I yeah. feel. And because I feel like humans are like, um, just burn that down. We don't like that. God. I mean, anyway. Anyway, all in all, I am going to give this four out of five splotches of mold. Uh, it was a really good modern take on the gothic novel, and it was certainly a wild ride once that twist hit. The only reason I didn't give it five is I honestly felt a little deceived because I thought I was going to get like 1950s gothic like combination and it managed to still end up Victorian, which I liked. It's just not what I wanted. Yeah. But I feel like a lot of that was marketing because honestly, even the blurb doesn't necessarily be like set in the glamorous 1950s. Like a lot of that was marketing. Yeah. But yeah, so that is Mexican gothic. The story itself sounds cool. It was certainly interesting. Yeah, I don't know if I have any other commentary on that. I hate mold. 
Anyways, so, <laughs> uh, so if you were in Mexico in the 50s in Mexican Gothic, would you end up being murdered? Honestly, most likely. Uh, I'm not sure what role I would play here, but let's assume that because I am white, I would be a Doyle, and Francis is the only one who survives. So, yeah, probably dead. Okay. Would you die in tall man silver balls? In Phantasm? Hmm. That's a good question. I don't necessarily... Okay, so assuming everything is real and not a dream... I don't necessarily think so. One, I don't really make it a habit to hang out at mausoleums or anything like that. Boring. And and I would have very little problem resisting the Lady in Lavender from seducing me, which seems to be how they kind of imply that he gets all of his victims. So that being said, I'll probably say I would not be killed. Also, I am not the type to be like, we need, like, they keep, investigating this place they're like oh this guy is this evil monster so we should just investigate more and go back i would be like this guy's this evil monster so i should just like peace out of this town yep so so i'm gonna go with a no awesome (laughs) so yeah that's everything for this week thank you so much for listening we really do appreciate it please feel free to rate review subscribe we love to see it uh, you can find us on social media at Second to Die Pod on Twitter and Instagram. You can also find us on Goodreads under Second to Die Pod, where I post the book that I am reading for the next week. You can also email us at Second to Die Pod at gmail.com. Any questions, comments, corrections, concerns, whatever you may have, or if you just want to chat about horror or something, by all means, let us know. Please talk to us. We're lonely. <laughs> no, we really are. This quarantine is going on forever. Anyway, and remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die.